another episode of Blunder Phonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. Uh, my name is Spencer Faust. I'm Jack Erback. And Jack, first of all, how are you doing? What have you been listening to? I've been listening to a lot of pop punk in preparation of this episode, actually. You, you might find that shocking because I almost never listened to it up until recently. I think in middle school, I had the path of terrible angsty music, and there were two paths for me. I could have went down pop punk, but I chose alternative metal and grunge. <laughs> I, I prefer that more metallic, melodyless kind of music style. So, yeah, I kind of missed out on a lot of that, and I'm trying to catch up. What have you been listening to? Don't worry, Jack. I'm going to give you a crash course in all these, all this scene you you missed when you chose Allison Chains over uh, uh, <laughs> AFI. So I I have been listening to. It'll actually come up a little later, but I've been listening to a lot of pop punk as well, and it is uh, burned into my brain. And today's episode is what I would call a little bit lighter. It's it's a diet blunder phonics, if you will. I found a small handful of wild stories associated with this pivotal album, uh, and I figured it's better off told in a shorter episode than not at all. So one more thing before we get our feet wet, uh, I'm gonna say emo a lot, and consider Ooh. this consider this your trigger warning because when I say emo, I'm using a term that was like staunchly rejected by all of the bands that were labeled with emo. Uh, it, it was it was <laughs> a naughty word. It was like a voodoo curse. Bands <laughs> would see it forced onto them and then they would respond by becoming so pop punk that it gives you like a hot topic rewards card for listening to them. So emo might bother some of our, how would I say it, musically inclined audience uh, because I know there's a, a big debate surrounding whether you're describing real emo from the late 80s or Midwest emo from the 90s. Understand, I'm talking about scene kids. <laughs> it's one of those genres where it's like, there's a lot of bands that go under it, but none of them want to be. Exactly. It's kind of like the new metal of pop punk, yes. to go back to my alternative <laughs> metal roots. It's very similar. We've listened to very similar different kinds of music. They're just different genres. It's kind of fun. And emo gets its roots in the aftermath of grunge. Um in the 90s, you get your Nirvana, your Pearl Jam, your Alice in Chains, but by the early 2000s, mainstream rock is like still held in a death grip by your traditional power chord chuggers. Nothing wrong with that, but bands like Green Day, Foo Fighters, or uh, Creed, I guess. Oh, oh, oh post-grunge. <laughs> Nasty. In a, in a sort of sideways leap, the angst and self-loathing of the 90s gave way towards this cousin of grunge, the emo scene. Uh, bands like Dashboard Confessional, AFI, Brand New, Taking Back Sunday, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. All They all start embracing the you know eyeliner, long hair, hardcore, emotional scene. That's where emo comes from. It's not... Um, emo doesn't necessarily have to mean sad boy. It just means very emotive music, whether that be angry, be sad, be ecstatic, whatever you want. It's It, it kind of got diluted into just sad boy <laughs> smeared <laughs> eyeliner. And I think in an era that was given, it gave the reins to, to kids to customize their MySpace pages with all the shitty poetry that they could write, nobody else would thrive in this scene quite as well as My Chemical Romance. Oh, you are not kidding. <laughs> the band... I, I don't think it's necessary to do too deep a dive on the members because we're going to start with uh, uh, the most important, Gerard Way. The band starts in 2001 when Gerard Way was a intern at Cartoon Network. Uh, he had <gasps> oh a, my God! We're gonna listen to Chowder Rock. He had a very, he had a very artistic upbringing. We'll say a very expressive kid. 
And by 2001, a late teens, early 20s, he was born in like 77. So I guess, I guess Gerard was around his mid 20s when he's an intern at Cartoon Network. He's been trying to make his own comic series around this time. Uh, he'd been drafting up this vampire comic series that never really came to fruition. But another perhaps slightly more notable event from September 2001, uh, specifically Tuesday the 11th, uh, was, you know, um, the release of Jay-Z's Blue. Oh, okay. And that really inspired him to go into music and hip hop. Exactly. Yeah. Had Eminem, had Kanye on it. Um, oh my God. I think there were also some terror attacks that were not Jay-Z's Blue album. I have no idea what you're talking about. Way being from Newark, New Jersey, was a firsthand witness of the attacks uh, and the fall of the trade centers. And in his own words, it sparked a desire to abandon the quiet art that he'd been working on. Uh, he said he needed to get out in the world and he had to make a difference. And that so, comic he abandoned was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So our quest to destroy Al-Qaeda with punk rock starts with uh, Gerard and drummer uh, Matt Pellissier, I believe. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, They rope in Ray Toro, since Gerard couldn't sing and play guitar at the same time, uh, followed by uh, Mikey and Frank. So I'm honestly surprised none of them are named Johnny Black. I just concocted this image of this guy who's just named Johnny Black, and he just shows up, and he's awesome. I thought that was the singer. I thought it was the lead singer. (laughs) I thought you were going to say he abandoned his comic books, and he just decided to, like, don a cape and be a superhero named Johnny Black to sing pop punk to all the children. That's not far off from from the album we're going to be focusing on today when he does adapt, like, this alter alias for his stage performances. Mikey Way, by the way, is, uh, is, is Gerard's younger brother. Uh, and Frank, Frank Iero. So Frank comes straight out of uh, Pensy Prep, which is this post-hardcore punk project uh, around New Jersey. And he joins MCR like two days before they officially start writing and demoing their inaugural album titled I Brought You My Bullets, You Brought Me Your Love. Uh, an album title so lengthy it actually birthed Pete Wentz and Brendan Urie. Um, <laughs> December, by the way, December 2001 is when they're getting started. It's like three months after forming, two days after recruiting Frankie Arrow. Uh, that's when the band starts writing the album. So recorded in just 10 days in New Windsor, New York, uh, the first album is unmistakably post-hardcore, punk-influenced. It's it's a super raw album. And having listened to them recently, is that what you would expect? Like, do you know much about their origins? Uh, I didn't really know anything. I just listened to Black Parade, and at first I was like, this is just going to be like Green Day or Panic at the Disco or Fall Out Boy. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. And I actually have listened to a bit of their back catalog, which is their debut, and I was, I was surprised. Usually when you look back on those bands... And you look at them nowadays, they are not making the same kind of music and it's kind of feels disingenuous. But this is one of those cases where it was just kind of refreshing to go back and listen to this band just being more raw, more honest with themselves. As sure. opposed to like uh, Fall Out Boy, you listen to them singing about how they're going down and they need some sugar and shit like that. <laughs> I think they've always kind of made music like that. Where like, we're going to dance and I'm going to cry. Patrick Stump would like wine oh yeah he had the, he had those great whining pipes <laughs> yeah I, I was pleasantly surprised by it because it made me realize i've never actually listened to them before i just kind of wrote them off as just another green day another panic at the disco but it was it was a much different story i always thought i was in the right of never listening to them because you would see green day going on to make like the goofiest triple album you would have fall out boy going electro pop <laughs> fucking panic at the disco is doing duets with taylor swift and you're just like yeah 
I missed the right bullet. But no, they're actually quite... <laughs> they're, it's a different story with this band. Insofar as My Chemical Romance not straying too far from what they are, it's a direct result of them knowing when to quit, is what it was. Um, because they were on the path to do what the rest of the scene did. And there's there's room for that later on. Gerard uh, and the rest of the band get this get this good reception. They get good momentum going. Um, they tour with Avenge Sevenfold. And another thing that I think was a very interesting signal boost for them was they were giving out a lot of their music for free on MySpace. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. That would catapult you into fame in the early 2000s. So they really break out around 2003 or 2004. It's right after they finish their tour with Avenge Sevenfold that they go in to record Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, uh, which is personally my favorite. Great yippee, album. Yippee, yippee, yippee. Revenge. <laughs> very, very post-hardcore. Uh, another concept album, uh, which kind of, it seems like it actually picks up the story from the last album, but um, it sets the sets the scene because Black Parade is the... Oh, it's it's so concept album. It's Queen. It's it's one giant rock opera. Uh, uh, yeah, I personally got a lot of Sergeant Pepper from it. If Sergeant Pepper was in black and white and cried a lot, absolutely one of Gerard's <laughs> biggest influences was Sergeant Pepper and uh, and Queen. Was that he was that really experimental period of music uh, was very inspirational to him, and that really plays into Black Parade. But this album's got a little more polish to it, but it starts to define the. Black, you know, the, the mascara, the fucking dyed hair, the goth aesthetic, um, and it starts getting more media attention. Um, their, their lead single, I'm Not Okay, <laughs> off of that album. <laughs> what could it mean? I, you know, it's a mystery to me. Rolling Stones pokes, pokes at them with the emo stick to call it um, a surging piece of emo pop with a hook as ridiculously catchy as it was ridiculous. Ooh. Uh, and, quote, a moving anthem for the young and depressed. Um, Gerard, I think, famously goes on to say that emo is bullshit and do not call us that. Um, <laughs> but this album scores really well, scores even better than their first and it leads to a handful of things that set the stage for Black Parade. First, they're picked up on Warp Tour for 2005, co-headlining along with another um, emo pop supergroup, Fall Out Boy. <gasps> uh, dance Dance. Dan dance Dance. Dance Dance for the sugar. We're going down. Uh, this, this was around when Fall Out Boy had just dropped their second album from Under the Cork Tree, uh, which I've been listening to on a uh, audio IV drip for the past three weeks. It's what I eat and breathe. I thought <laughs> I you were going to say for the past 20 years, personally. But. Oh, God, I'm eating this album up so hard. Um, second, the major amount of attention uh, kind of feeds into Gerard's self-destructive self habits. We don't have to dive too hard on this, but let's just say that the creative you know, stage presence that he was felt a lot of pressure to be a character, and to fuel that, he felt like you know, he felt, he felt, oh, well, if I'm going to be this guy that thousands of teens are idolizing, um, I got to keep that guy alive with a constant bender of Xanax and booze. Um, this is not new. I mean, it was part of the inspiration for the first album, but it becomes a big problem. Uh, it just spirals further into uncontrollable alcoholism. And that's when, you know, Gerard hits rock bottom and recovers within about three weeks. So he's got a little bit of life experience, got a little bit of background. And I think that feeds into the inspiration for the album we will be talking about today, The Black Parade. 
when they were enjoying the limelight around the release of Three Cheers, we touched on the press that they got with Warped Tour 2005. Um, I kind of skimmed over the fact that they also opened for Green Day on the American Idiot Tour. Oh, okay. Another band that was heavily inspired by the terrorist attacks and politics and all that. Exactly, yeah. Um, and MCR was, they kind of called uh, Green Day and Mr. Mr. Billy Joe Armstrong uh, Johnny kind of Green, the band. excuse you. Johnny Green, yeah, excuse me, Johnny <laughs> Green. They kind of said Green Day was sort of like a big brother to them, or more like a father figure in the music industry. They were kind of surprised at how willing the band was to help them out and kind of show them the ropes of being overnight sensations. Aw, that's kind of sweet of them. Yeah, Green Day is one of those bands that got famous with them, but they were much older. They were around for a quite a bit longer, so that's oh, kind of yeah. nice. It's kind of nice how they're all helping each other they out. They got their start, what, early 90s, late 80s? Green Day, by the way, I would I would love to do an episode on them in the future, especially if I can find any and all info on uh, Cigarettes and Valentines, which was basically the the lost album from 2002 that they they got the master tapes back, but they were like, you know what? This is a sign. We shouldn't make this. Let's do Green Day. Let's do Green Day, American Idiot. I never heard of that one. And everyone clapped. Everyone <laughs> clapped. All of America clapped. They got Slime Time lived in that, in that cool music video, and everyone loved it. So that hooks MCR up with Green Day's latest producer of their last few albums, Rob Cavallo. Rob was among the industry pros that were like coming out to watch MCR rehearse after the tours of Three Cheers. They were like talent scouting. And after watching the bare bones of Black Parade take shape in one of those rehearsals, uh, Mr. Cavallo was allegedly jumping and screaming, <laughs> insisting uh, that they go to the studio immediately. Was this a 12-year-old girl in a trench coat pretending to be a man? I think this might have been an <laughs> imposter pretending to be Rob Cavallo. This was actually Rob Cavallo's youngest daughter. Um, so Rob Cavallo is now producing. The album was recorded between April and August of 06, uh, though the songs were tracked at El Dorado Recording Studios in Burbank, California. The label secured something a little more unique for the writing process. We're going to get a little artsy-fartsy with this. The label says, let's shack you guys up in the Paramore Mansion. The Paramore Mansion is <gasps> a, it, it's this LA mansion and historical landmark turned recording studio around the late 90s, um, built way back in the 30s. Uh, and Jack, get ready for this, buckle up. I'm ready. Gave them cancer. It was, it was quite haunted. <laughs> quite haunted? Yes! Another haunting. That's right. Oh my right. god, we're going to have more ghost boots. Get your Microsoft Connects out because Spencer's taking on the ghost tour. We're going to go right. looking for some ghosts with Johnny Black and the Black Parade. Get those spectrometers out, guys. Oh the band god. crumpled up pieces of paper uh, labeled for one of each room and picked at random. So our, our drummer, Bob Breyer, got the only room isolated on the lower floor. Uh, Mikey gets the blue room. Featuring one little blue light bulb all the way up on the ceiling, which did not light the room, but just cast it in a weird blue glow. Oh my god. Those are the two most notable, notable testimonies I and get. And then there's about the red place. room where you get tuberculosis. And, and the, the green yellow room. room with yellow fever, and the green room where there's the MMs. So, no, 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 Green Day. Oh, my bad. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> so the band sets about writing a rock opera about a man who's dying. And his journey into the great unknown of death. It's its a grim concept already, but it's only compounded by a series of bad shit that takes place across the following months. 
to start. The place is populated by what I believe is a team of, I don't know, rescue dogs, but most likely belonging to either the engineers, housekeepers, or property owners. All I know is the band just testifies that there's a bunch of dogs running around the mansion. They don't say who they belong to. <laughs> well, the dogs actually own the mansion. That must be it. It was a Goldilocks situation where it's they like, just moved in and the dogs came back. They're like, well, dude, what the hell? That's my bed. What the fuck? You're in my studio. Get off my get off my Les Paul. <laughs> the band members would like bribe them with treats so the dogs would follow them into the creepier chunks of the mansion. Like the laundry, which was deep in the basement at the end of a long, poorly lit hallway. These dogs would frequently bark at thin air. Obviously, obviously spooks and specters are abound. Absolutely. That's just old house stuff, though. I mean, what made things a little stranger was oddities like the clawfoot bathtub that was never used by the band, but would leave large puddles beneath it overnight. We got ghost baths. Oh my god, the bathroom had to go to the bathroom. Squeaky clean banshees. So again, that's just old house stuff. Maybe it's like a leaky pipe or something like that. Right. Well, how about we ramp up the spook factor yes, by talking please. about the doors that were slamming themselves? Is that like a sexual reference or like they were slamming? Because I want to know if there's like an, a ghost orgy going on with doors, because that would be fucking awesome. <laughs> I want to ask you what you mean, but I know you don't know. Uh, <laughs> I and have also, no fucking clue. And also the ghost that Ray Toro saw. Saw a lady dressed in white wandering the halls. It's real spooky. The band also, there was a fireplace in the, they had this big ballroom where they had set up all their gear. And, you know, they would like come wake each other up at five in the morning and be like, yo, come down here. We got something that we're going to jam on because we don't want to lose it by going to sleep. Is this ghost lady actually uh, Lisa Minnelli? Yes, actually. I th <laughs> it's, I'm glad you asked Gwen Stefani. So oh. just a girl. She's just a girl. So this ballroom had this giant painting of like a beautiful scene of angels. And they were like, oh, isn't that nice? Um, reportedly, when they like moved a big pot, like a big vase off the fireplace, uh, it reveals that at the lower chunk of the painting is a, is a big old devil demon who's who's reaching for the angel's feet. Oh, God. Isn't that spooky? That's Isn't that super spooky? spooky. <laughs> Secret devils. And, of course, Briar, when he brought a friend out to the mansion, um, realized that uh, the house had a... It was tailor-made for spookery when they were watching films like, uh, you know, from Scream or the Halloween series and realized uh, that those movies were filmed in the mansion they were recording in. Can you imagine if they just watched, like, Air Bud instead? Like, did they have to watch the spooky movie that made them realize they were in a horror house? They could have been like, oh, we're watching fucking Beethoven. Oh, that's why this is the doghouse. Everything's happy. No, it has to be fucking slasher movies. And, of course, none of this is to say we're even close to inspiring the Black Parade. This is all child's play. This is amateur hour spookery. Yeah, right now we're on Dog Parade or Ghost Parade. We haven't gotten to the real black of the situation. There was a song on the album called Sleep, which was, it made the cut on the album fairly late. And it was the product of night terrors that Gerard was having. Um, sleep paralysis encounters where he had hallucinations of, of being choked in his bed in the most unkinky way. Oh no, the worst kind of sleep paralysis demon. Unkinky. A and these were apparently followed by further nightmares about the death of Joan of Arc, which, which evolved into similar witch burnings of his friends and family. They must have been watching some sort of historical documentary that was filmed in that house too. <laughs> Needless to say, someone uh, was a little light on sleep for this fun family trip to the Haunted Mansion. Now, next, 
And all of this spookery starts compounding on some of the band members, affecting Mikey most of all. Mikey Way, he's a, he's a very silent member of the band, very frequently takes a back seat in the live shows and, and basically hides behind Frankie or Ray or Gerard throughout most of the live performances. He just tries his best to be even farther back than the drummer. Um, well, Mikey's he's very much a, a Brian Wilson, if you will. So Mikey's own mental health issues and, and general spookery lead to a, a rather dramatic night where he outright leaves the band and is prepared to go get a hotel room before leaving the whole thing behind for good. Now, it was that evening that Gerard ran into Frank Iero uh, jamming on some Black Sabbath riffs. Oh, yes. Here we go. The Black. <laughs> and that's when he said, I know what we're calling the album. <laughs> Uh, and the two shaped out what would become the song Famous Last Words. Uh, the lyrics very heavily inspired by Mikey's sudden departure. Um, it was a rough demo of the song that actually won Mikey's confidence and, and got him to return to the project and finish the album. Uh, the same song would undergo a lot of changes right as it was being recorded, but trust me, Jack, we'll get back to Famous Last Words before this episode is done. Oh boy, oh boy. I now, cannot wait. Bob Breyer uh, had a great interview he did with Alt Press uh, when the album's 10th anniversary rolled around. And there is so much of it to fit into this episode, but I want to touch on some highlights uh, from the drummer's perspective when they were when they were finishing up recording. Quote, <laughs> because I, I just I can't tell this story better than he can. Quote, for some reason, as we were recording a song for the record, um, the label put us into a car and, and took us on a private jet. They flew us all the way to Las Vegas and put us in a huge multi-level room with a full-sized basketball court in it. And I'm telling you all this info to give you like a chance to understand the setup. At one point, I was upstairs and heard someone come in talking really loud. Someone had just invited themselves in, I guess. And then I heard a a trademark, yeah! <laughs> Uh, and I look, I look over the railing, and motherfucking Lil John was there to bring us a case of his crunk juice. Yes, yes, we're going crunkcore. Yes, <laughs> that is a good memory that I will keep forever. Briar said. <laughs> oh my god, I wish I was haunted by Lil John. And I wish I understood how what purpose any of that served. They flew us to a big room with a basketball court in it. Lil John showed up. He gave us some crunk juice. <laughs> I'm honestly shocked they didn't just get Lil John in on the record. He could have been the main star. Imagine that collab album, The Little John Parade. Breyer also talks about the uh, uh, recording of This Is How I Disappear. Uh, Breyer is particular about nailing drums in one take and avoiding overdubs and punch-ins where he can. So while recording This Is How I Disappear, Breyer did a dozen takes without managing to nail the song. So to try and reset his mind, he... Uh, allegedly, like, left the studio, grabbed a rental car outside, drove it into the middle of fucking Mahalan Drive, and did burnouts and donuts until the tires were smoking, uh, and then he drove back to the mansion, jumped onto his kit, and got it in one take. I don't know if that has anything to do with drumming. I have a feeling he just <laughs> wanted to go fuck around in a car. <laughs> you don't think that's part of the process? You know, I mean, when I wanted to learn guitar, the first thing I did was just go and cut trees down, and it gave me the inspiration to learn music theory, personally. <laughs> I've heard some takes on, like, you know, resetting your mind, really. going back to a zen state so you can, yeah, like, but that's finally like practice meditating. Again, but... That's like yoga or Pilates, not, not <laughs> fucking Need for Speed. <laughs> Jack, here comes what I would consider probably my favorite part of the Black Parade. Um, the music video for Famous Last Words. 
Yes, that's the one where uh, everyone's spooky looking and there's fire everywhere, correct? Yes, there's fire everywhere. And uh, Johnny um, Black's I, I, got his makeup on. He looks like a skull boy. He's very yes. spooky. He looks, and, and they looks keep like fall, a skull. They fall down a lot. I've noticed that. Yes. Everyone's everyone's falling down. Everyone's a little... No one had protein is the thing. Nobody had protein. They were all hungry at the end of that shoot. <laughs> um, so that shoot is... That morning, they shot the music video for Welcome to the Black Parade, which I'm going to say it right now. Um, y'all can fight me if you disagree. That is emo Bohemian Rhapsody. And and you can just go home if you don't like that take. I actually watched that music video as well, and it looked like a very Mad Max Christmas. <laughs> like everyone it's, was all dolled up in like gas masks and shit, and it was snowing. I was like, this is a party. Tim Man, cancer must be fun. <laughs> Tim Burton definitely directed that, uh, and I think he did it under a pseudonym. So, <laughs> the both these music videos, by the way, Welcome to the Plaque Parade and Famous Last Words, both those music videos were shot by the dude who did Green Day's American Idiot music video. Oh, uh, um, okay. Yeah, and, so, and, and MCR really had to stop him from adding green slime to it. So... <laughs> He was like, yeah, this black and white shit is really cool. When do I get to slime, you guys? <laughs> he was just waiting for it. Oh, come on, um, we need some color. How about green? That morning, they filmed Welcome to the Black Parade, which involves, yeah, the big per- black and white parade float and all that. Well, the famous last words video, all of the all of the parade members have left. All their supporters are gone. It's just the parade float in, like, a dusty field at night. Um, and so the parade float is set aflame. And this is recorded on the same day as Welcome to the Black Parade. So they they shoot that, they haul it out to the, the site for this music video, and they set it on fire and start recording famous last words. Now, let's talk about what happens when you light a really big fire for a music video. Number one... It's really cool. It's super cool looking. Uh, you have one take <laughs> before your giant parade float is gone. So... <laughs> If you trip uh, repeatedly, you just have to keep it in. You just got to keep it in. Um, better yet, I don't know if you noticed, if you paid too much attention to drummer Bob Breyer during that video. I don't know if you can think of any standout memories of the drummer, but... Um, I remember the vague f- panic at one point. Yeah, um, so the fire gets really... It's right behind him. It's like, it's It's about... 60 feet away from him, and it's a roaring flame that is huge. Um, it grows as fire is wont to do. <laughs> um, and and Briar says, like, as I'm doing this, I am, number one, blasting, just blasting through this take as hard and fast as I can, and I'm feeling um, intense pain on the back of my legs. And I'm like, I got one take, I can't stop. So he keeps going. And you can see at, at random shots him, like, trying to sneak a peek at the back of his legs as he's going. Turns out the, like, silvery lining to their, like, parade getup that they're wearing melted to the back of his legs. Oh, my God. You're melting your drummer. Second and third degree burns on Bob Breyer as he's blasting through this and cannot stop. Because it's like, if I stop, we lose our take. And we this can't is the- go get another parade float. He's getting melted. He is getting melted alive. The song brought back Mikey, and it's going to lose Briar. <laughs> well, so, it's an even trade. It's fine. Um, you got to make a sacrifice see, sometime. You can see some of the last shots. He is almost on fire, just getting completely overwhelmed by the size of this, this inferno. Yeah, now, I was kind of hoping he, that was just like an effect and not like literally him dying. 
meanwhile, Briar's not the only one who's getting hurt. Gerard uh, is falling down a lot throughout that video. Johnny Black's just falling all over the place. <laughs> uh, and there's a part where he's in a kneeling position. Now, Frankie Arrow thinks that this is a great time to tackle Gerard for the fun of it, to like add to the to the zany nature of the music video. Well, what? That's not that's <laughs> not a great position to get tackled in. And Gerard tears ligaments in his ankle and calf and thigh. Oh my god. Um and oh. <laughs> and and Ray Toro, I don't know what his fucking excuse is, but he just fractures his fingers as they're filming this. He, he was feeling left out. One of them was getting burnt up. One of them was getting tackled. So he's just like, eh, I'm just going to smash my fingers. Um, I don't want to be left out as, of the injury party. So they call cut and Gerard can't get off the ground because he's just, his, his legs don't work. Um, Bob Breyer is sprinting off the set, just screaming. Uh, and, and Ray's fingers are broken in the wrong direction. So these injuries uh, are so severe that many of them are hospitalized. Um, Briar goes on to get gangrene from the infection, Ugh. and then when they later did a show in Japan, um, it still wasn't fixed, and he got a blood infection. Oh God! Well, uh, welcome to the to the Black Plague. So, welcome to the gangrene parade, more like it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Gerard and Toro's and Briar's injuries were all so extensive that they had to, without reason, they, they didn't give a statement. They had to pull out of the uh, 22nd Annual Street Scene Festival in San Diego, um, which upset a lot of fans, but, but it was lucky on MCR's part um, because 15 people got trampled at that festival because everyone was really excited to get close to the stage when Tool was playing. I mean, to be fair, it is Tool. That's pretty it's awesome. Jack, if you had to get trampled for one band, who would it be? It, it would be Tool. I, I would love I to believe... get smashed so I could hear James Mayer Keenan singing about his own dick. I remember uh, some quote was like, somewhere midway through the set, uh, uh, Tool just starts like yelling to the crowd. Mr. Tool's like, stop, it's music, stop, you're stepping on each other. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone's opening their third eye, taking acid, and just killing each other. <laughs> no wonder they took so long to come up with a new album. Oh my god, they were gonna kill people. It debuts on MTV's Total Request Live on January 11th. Uh, within two weeks, it's number one. It gets 103 million views as of now on YouTube. Mm. Um, the UK premiere uh, cuts the clip of Bob getting lit on fire, but the American the American networks were like, nah, keep it. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's if you're gonna get lit on fuck. fire, you might as well keep it. For real, I feel like Bob was like, no, 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 not jolly good. Keep it in. <laughs> I didn't get burned for nothing. So, uh, Jack, I feel like now's a good time. What did you think of the Black Parade? Because it gets it gets massive praise. What did you think of the Black Parade? Well, Spencer, I remember the first time I listened to this album. My father, he took me to a pop punk concert yeah. to see Green Day, the band. He yes. said, son, when I leave you... <laughs> Will you please listen to some better fucking music? No, I actually thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. I well, I, you could you could have fooled me. That sounds like that sounds like your dad. I mean, we're on <laughs> we're on track so far. No, uh, I liked it overall. Uh, like I said, when I was in middle school, I had the two paths of angsty music, and I went more metallic. Uh, in my older years, I mean, I'm only in my mid twenties, but in my older years, I have kind of favored more melodic music and preferred albums that kind of try to tackle things in a more artistic and like 
bombastic way, so to speak. So when I listened yeah. to this album, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised that I wasn't hearing like Jay Z opening for Fall Out Boy, for example. Uh, it, it was <laughs> this was an album that, for better or for worse, was very very dedicated to this uh, pop punk, very emotional ballad of this this man dying of cancer, basically. And while I can't say that it's like my absolute favorite thing ever, I did enjoy it a lot more than I thought I would. I agree. Like, and I say this as someone who liked it when it came out, um, but I remember Nathan suggesting this episode to me and me thinking, okay, it's been so long since I've actually gone back and sat down to listen to Black Parade. I know I'm going to do this and and just cringe internally on every minute of it because it's going to be this holdover of angsty scene music, but I was pleasantly blown away. It holds up really well, actually. And I think it's um, a lot to do with the concept of it as well. I think the concept is just simple enough for them to do a lot with without feeling like they need to go like ultra cheesy. I mean, you look at some yeah. of Green Day's concept albums and they don't really hold up as well nowadays. They're a little bit too goofy and over the top. You, you feel like there's not a whole lot of self-awareness. And I think there's a lot of that here. I think that there Gerard is. and his makeup and him falling over, he's kind of aware of it all being a little bit of fun. I right. hate to say cancer the, um, is fun, but that's what it is. <laughs> it's and and it it reminded me because I went back to do my research and and I wanted to gouge my eyes out at all of the comments. Who's still listening to MCR in 2019? Every, everybody is. You fucking <laughs> asshole. Shut up. Please shut up. Go home. I don't this care is alternative. if you're 50 and love this album. This is alternative so, music for people who don't want to listen to alternative music. It's like, hey, who's listening to this? Everyone is. Everyone. It's like calling the Halsey is. alternative. It's like, that's just, everyone hears it might, this. It might as well be a question on the goddamn 2020 census. Who's still listening to Black Parade in 2019? <laughs> everyone. Wow. Wow. Who's, who's, who's impressed? If you haven't seen MCR live, in my opinion, they hold up really well, and I am sad I never got to see them because, spoiler alert, they did break up in 2013. No, um, no. They, but, they got to avoid the horrible, horrible thing that happens to pop punk bands where they become really <laughs> shitty. Black Parade was like a global sensation. It was, to my recollection, it really we'll touch on this a bit later, but it was one of the last huge albums of this scene. And it might, in fact, be the last huge album of this scene. There's a concert movie, uh, The Black Parade is Dead. It's like two It's two sets. It's one that is their uh, Black Parade tour. Actually, really, I think they're the same tour. One is their big Black Parade getup, uh, which basically when the album came out, um, they performed as not My Chemical Romance, but The Black Parade. Like when they oh, announced very Sergeant Peppery. Their their announcement of the show, uh, or of the album, was they they announced a impromptu show. They were like, "Hey, we're playing at this London venue. Come check it out. It's a small venue. It's exclusive. Come check it out." Uh, people scoop up tickets immediately. Sold out. Everyone shows up to this concert to find a bunch of people in like black robes with picket signs that say the Black Parade. And they're like, oh, this is weird. This is some kind of new religious movement. They go into the concert and 
first a person comes out on stage uh, that is not a member of the band and says, hey, MCR canceled last minute. We're really sorry, uh, but the opener is still going to play. They're called the Black Parade. Enjoy. And everyone was like, this is dumb. Give me, oi, oi, gov. This is, this is right. <laughs> this isn't right proper. I want oh, my, my pence back. And, and then Little John comes out opening for them. <laughs> uh, and MCR comes out in a different getup in this like parade, this black and white parade getup, marching band getup, and they play a typical set, but announce, hey, we're the Black Parade. Um, and it's it's the big teaser they announce, we're working on a new album, everyone gets the, oh, oh, they're doing like a bit. They're doing like a cool promotional bit. Well, that's how they toured the album too, was they toured it as My Chemical Romance featuring the Black Parade. And it was just, they played the whole set as this different band. Yeah, it's very Sgt. Pepper. Um, but yeah, this concert movie features their Mexico City performance as the Black Parade, which was a number one, way more people than I ever expected to see come see one of their shows. They sold out a stadium and it, it was nuts how many people from a, another country came to see this band. Um, and then they have as the second half of the movie. A, a a set they did in a really closed venue in New Jersey in their hometown, um, which I much prefer their tighter venue performance. You know, it's a mixed set. It's much, I prefer more intimate venues like that. It's just like, that's the punk. Those are the punk shows I kind of grew up in. So, right, it's weird to think of like punk, which started off as like, you know, just very raw and basic. And just hearing that there are these bands that just fill out stadiums and they have these huge theatrical performances. Yeah. It's almost like completely antithetical to what punk used to be. It's kind of interesting right, right. to hear about that. Yeah. It's like all my favorite, you know, Rise Against shows are the ones that are in tighter venues. Because it's like that's just what feels right to the atmosphere. Because I see, I see them open up for Foo Fighters at St. Louis selling out the fucking Scott Trade Center. I'm like, something about this don't feel right. <laughs> I want to feel Johnny Black's spit hit my face. Yeah, I want to be burned to death with the band, and like a, yeah. a room that could fit ten people, where a hundred people are in it. And the and yeah, the the big stadium show features all these pyrotechnics and stuff, and it's like that's just never that's never been my flavor. And this they is really obviously all. Didn't they learn from the music video though? <laughs> I would I would have never been close to a fucking match after that. Bob Breyer, no joke, uh, does not have candles or a fireplace in any of his homes. <laughs> he is he is fucking scared of fire now. Um, <laughs> We've made the hound out yeah, of him. Yeah, he went full so, hound. Yeah, the the public the the global reception of this album is nuts. It it does really really well. Um, there is some controversy following it in the UK. Um, there is a suicide by a thirteen year old girl named Hannah Bond. Oh and, fuck! Here we go again. And, this always happens in music. It, and uh, of course, the media picks it up and tries to tell parents, your kids are in suicide cults because my MCR wants them to kill themselves. And of course, that's that's stupid. It's sensationalized bullshit. It's just trying to scare parents, just like saying that they're, they're putting edibles in your kid's Halloween candy. No, nobody wants to give away their weed to your kids. Shut up. <laughs> Nobody cares enough to so they don't want to kill off uh, the people who are buying their shit. Now the album uh, is is still still mainstream at this point, but um, MCR of course responds by saying that's dumb. We're not telling anyone to kill themselves, and of course their fans get up in a tizzy, and thousands of fans start organizing on MySpace for the March Against the Daily Mail and and for the MC Army. 
Um, Which, and, just by the way, is an awesome name for a follow-up album. <laughs> the MC Army. No, um, March, March Against the Daily Mail would be a March wonderful album the Daily title. Mail. Any show they played in the UK from then on out, they did they did close it by saying "fuck the Daily Mail." Their tween fan base was not happy about this. A march of the thousands was planned. The cops were like, "Hey, uh, that's going to be a problem. Don't do that." And then it turned into a march of one hundred teenagers, uh, and it it remains one of the um, most uncomfortable pictures I've ever seen of a bunch of kids holding cardboard signs beneath a white marble arch saying that they are the MC Army. Um, and you know what? It's better than slacktivism. It's better than just sharing on Facebook and doing nothing. But uh, it's still it's still hard to watch. Oh man! It Were still you remains. In that group? I couldn't get my plane ticket out. My dad made me to stay home to study. <laughs> <laughs> um, but your dad actually got to make it. Yeah, my dad. My dad did go. My dad did go. <laughs> Fun fact: My dad does listen to Nine Inch Nails, and it makes no sense to me. Um, oh, he's so heavy metal. He's he's pretty hardcore, and he will anytime you call his music like tastes old, he will say that's not true. I listened to Trent Reznor. I like that one album he did. I, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> Spencer Stab, but at this point, Nine Inch Nails is thirty plus years old. <laughs> I'm I hate to break it to you, but that is old nowadays. It might be your dad, though. That's my same kind of music taste. You and my dad have too much in common, and I don't like it. <laughs> um, There's all that controversy. And to kind of cap it all off, the Black Parade was what I consider my very well-informed opinion, uh, the crescendo of the emo scene. It was the peak of mainstream emo success. Uh, after this point, bands like Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, AFI, and so on and so on began to move towards pop punk, pop rock, uh, and in Fall Out Boy's case, uh, a brave new genre I'm calling hip-hop abortion. So <laughs> the the scene starts to evolve, adapt. Uh, MCR was no exception. Uh, Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. Again, another thing that would just make Brendan Urie so proud would undergo a complete re-recording before its final release as a pop-punk genre shift. And Conventional Weapons, their next album, would be one of their final releases, a compilation album, not unlike their final release, May Death Never Stop You, in 2014, a send-off, best-of record, that would come one year after the band's formal breakup in 2013. Now, would I say Fabulous Killjoys is a complete genre shift? No. Um, it's not unlike... You know, however, Fallout Boys, uh, uh, Infinity on High, or Folly I Do. It's that being said, Fallout Boys genre shift was kind of like a slow evolution, and then after their hiatus was just a beheading of all their fans, pretty much. I mean, it just kind of happens. Sometimes people like to change, and sometimes the change is uh, shocking, like a horror movie or a haunted house. And you know what? Some of us might miss the emo scene, but um, allow me to help help you rip that band-aid off um, by saying that the lead singer of Brand New was recently outed uh, for virtually diddling teens back, back in the scene's heyday. So, hey, maybe we're better off. Maybe we're better off without the scene. <laughs> maybe oh. we're good. I just listened um, to the, one of their albums. So I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. And now you ruined it. Yeah, now he's a diddler. Don't listen to it. Gerard is uh, outliving the dreams of his youth. Uh, he's producing a Netflix series about the uh, comics that he was drafting during the Black Parade tour. Uh, he's also done a solo project, I believe, called Alien Ant Farm. No, I don't. I forget. What? I forget what it's. <laughs> that would be it's a, a fucking twist. It's some 2014 solo project, Alien something or other, I think. But but um, it's interesting. It's British like synth pop. So hmm. 
I mean, check it out, see if you like it. You can barely tell it's him singing because it's so washed out. But anyhow, you've been listening to Blunder Phonics. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Jack, uh, you have anything to plug? Uh, I would love to plug, I guess, at this point in time, my Rate Your Music page because a lot of my personal recommendations from other people uh, actually come from that website. That's a website I go to all the time for music, and I've been getting a lot of recommendations from there. And if you would like to kind of see my music taste and sort of get a feel for, or if you have an album you would like to recommend to me, visit me at The Dissonant Opinion. Dissonant Mm. as in loud and annoying. You can find all my ratings there. I've listened to thousands of things. They're not all there, but there you could actually find a list of everything we've covered and you could actually recommend albums to us directly. Which we sincerely appreciate. Yes, uh, absolutely. We love knowing that people are listening, and we love the recommendations. I I personally loved the fan recommendation of the Black Album from last episode. That was very fun. It was very very fun. Always fun talking um, about Prince. Uh, while I you're would, at it, I would I would sincerely suggest uh, rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps us out. Yes, uh, rate us. Rate your podcasts. That's the most uh, I will beg. Um, anything else? Nope, that's about it for me. I do actually have one other recommendation that I'll throw at the end of this episode, but you go ahead and plug whatever you need, Spencer. Uh, I'd love I'd love people to uh, uh, check out my brother's podcast, Mark's Madness. Uh, you can check out my other podcast, The Cock and Bull, and I believe that's it for me. And Spencer, I have one little recommendation for you personally. We've been talking oh. a lot about making comic books and musicians who are into comic books. Well, there is this one particular comic that was made by a musician, uh, Daniel Johnston, who I don't know if you know anything about this fellow, but he actually has recently, in 2012, published his own comic book series called Space Ducks. Okay. I would love for you to take a look at Space Ducks and viewers look at Space Ducks, because on our next episode, we are going to be talking about the man behind that wonderful comic book. I feel like there's just a lot of wonderful musicians out there who just really likes space ducks and Ninja Turtles and all of that fun comic stuff. Inside the space ducks. I it's, can't wait. Yes, in two weeks we will be talking about Daniel Johnson and his very, very intriguing uh, raise to fame in the music industry as somebody who was on the outside. It will be a wonderful episode. I hope you all stick around and listen to it. Share us with all your moms. Not your dads, though. They don't understand. They'll never understand. No, they don't get it. They don't get it. Put on your makeup and rebel. Hell yeah. (laughs) 